Our psalm of the day is found in Psalm 10. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. For the wicked boast of the desires of his soul, and, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of his sight. As for all his foes, he puffs up at them. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. He sits in ambush in the villages. In hiding places, he murders the innocent. His eyes steadily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws him to his net. The helpless are crushed, sink down, and fall by his might. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account? But you do see, for you note mischief and vexation, and you may take it into your hands. To you the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed, so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. All men are like grass, and all their glory like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall. But the word of our God stands forever. The New Testament passage we're going to be reading is from John chapter 9, verses 1 through 12. And as he passed by, he saw a man born blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to them, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were asking, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? And some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. And he kept saying, I am the man. And so they said to him, Then how uh, were your eyes opened? And he answered, The man called Jesus made mud, and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam 
and wash. And so I went and washed and received my sight. And they said to him, where is he? And he said, I do not know. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come to think about difficult things, but you tell us in your word that there is nothing difficult as long as we are in you, that we're not the ones fighting the fight, but rather you are, that you are the king. So Lord, as we think about some hard issues, some hard times, as we think about injustice of all things, suffering, we pray that you would be with us to enlighten our hearts. And we ask all this in the name of Christ, who strengthens us by his spirit. Amen. Well, good morning. Uh, I'm going to be with you for the next two weeks. And this is, you know, Chuck gets a little break in the middle of part of the year. And this is a good thing. But it may not be a good thing for you because I'm here for two weeks. Um, you have to put up with me. But it does, it does give me the opportunity to do a two-part series, uh, a look at, at one issue on both sides. And that's really what I want to do. Chuck was saying last week, for those of you who are here, that the Psalms really are the, the template for our emotional life and our prayer life. That the way the Psalms work is very often we feel emotions that we want to describe, maybe to God, but we're not sure if they're right. Maybe we shouldn't feel anger or frustration or doubt. Well, then you go to the Psalms and you actually see that there's a great deal of that language and it actually helps us to know that we can say these things to God within a posture of trust and childlikeness. Other times, those of us who are poor at maybe expressing our words, expressing how we feel, these types of things, the Psalms might, you say, give you some vocabulary as to how to express what's going on. You have this kind of visceral feeling in your gut, but you're saying, well, what is this feeling? You read a psalm, maybe it clicks in your head, okay, this is maybe what I'm feeling. So I'm going to take over the next two weeks the, the issue of suffering, the problem of the challenges of this world, sickness, death, oppression, injustice, these types of things. Very big and important subjects because no matter how long you live upon this earth, you're going to go through challenges and you're going to go through problems. There's not anyone in this world who is going to be immune from those things. A long enough timeline, maybe you've had a pretty good life, maybe you're only a few years uh, into your life, uh, six, seven years old, young kids, maybe you're in the prime of school age and you're going, ah, things are pretty good. A long enough timeline, everyone suffers. Everyone goes through a challenge and everyone has to ask the question, why? Why me? And so for the next two weeks, we're going to look at it. And I think it really divides in half this question because... The longer I sort of reflect on suffering and the Christian life, there really seems to be two buckets, two categories. On the one hand, which we're going to look at this week, it's the out of the blue, what did I do, I, I didn't see this coming, what happened, why question. A child gets cancer. Someone dies in a car accident when it's unexpected. Or just turn on the news in the last two weeks and you can see all kinds of examples of folks that had no intentions of being anywhere where something bad might happen and it did happen. The challenges of that question, which we're going to look at this week, are why. Next week, the other bucket, the other, the other sort of category is when you do it to yourself. It's when you're the knucklehead. You're doing something you know you shouldn't do, you're into something, you're, you're addicted to something, you're, you're angry and you won't let it go, whatever it might be, and it then breaks something, it, it, it crushes something, it, it ruins a relationship, let's say. 
And then how do you recover from that? How does the Psalms tell us to deal with that? Those, I think, are the two basic categories. The suffering you didn't see coming, and the suffering you thought would never happen, but it did, and you knew you were being wrong, and you knew you shouldn't have been doing that thing. And how do you get out of that? Well, let's look at the first. The blind side, when suffering seems to come out of nowhere. It seems to me that there are a couple of ways to think about this biblically. I think by nature, by default, most evangelicals and most Protestants, and certainly almost all Presbyterians, have within them a fear of doubt, or a fear of the doubt, I should say. The question is, is can I actually say, why God? We tend to think that it's actually a wrong thing to say, what up, God? Where are you? Why did this happen? We have an almost sadomasochistic sense that what we're supposed to do is just to say, oh, that's fine. I don't care anymore. You're almost kind of supposed to let yourself no longer be a person who cares about anything. Or when you see tragedy on the news, when you see tragedy around the world, I don't care if you're political or not, your instincts sometimes are to say, I don't know why, but I guess, you know, I'm just going to have to not question, doubt, ask, where is God in all of this? And you actually see this both in the psalm that we read and in the gospel of John chapter 9 that we read. Two little facets of this. In the, God, in, the, sorry, in the psalm, what you're actually seeing, believe it or not, is a psalm of doubt that is about as full-throated as you're going to find in the entirety of the Bible. It doesn't just say, where are you, God, in the midst of suffering? It actually paints a picture of people doing about as awful set of circumstances of things as possible, doing horrible, wicked things, actually murdering innocents. And he paints this picture as if they're getting away with it and they're in control. And then by the end, though, he pulls that back and he says, but they're not in control. They are not the ones in charge. God is king. Now, I think it's important in that psalm to get the ratio of that, because what he does is he sort of sits in the problem for longer than you and I might. He allows it actually to to bring out of him the very natural, childlike, innocent emotions of You know, I know you're in charge, but sometimes I wonder. You see, because there's a difference between wondering in the context of being a child and the kind of wondering where you're actually mad at God and you doubt whether or not he's actually good. You get the difference? One says, I trust you, but sometimes I don't see what's going on. The other says, I don't even trust you anymore because how dare you do this to me or allow this to happen to me or these types of things. But I think we're so fearful of the second one that we don't allow the very healthy biblical first one. Which if you have kids, you know that's exactly how they act. I love you, daddy. I trust you, daddy. I understand this. But I am frightened about everything right now. What kind of a parent would I be if I said, don't you dare describe that emotion to me? Act stoic. Let me ask a five-year-old or a seven-year-old. Act stoic. Act calm about everything. And don't ever tell me when you're afraid. Of course not. As a parent, I want them to tell me when they're afraid, when they doubt, when they don't know what's going on. And it's hard to, even if I tell them exactly why they have no reason to be fearful of whatever it is, they have no reason to doubt that. Still, they're going to say, I know, but it's hard sometimes. I can still doubt. I don't know what's going on. I don't know what thunder sounds like. I'm only five. It scares me. I'm sitting there going, there's nothing. Don't worry about it. It still scares me. The difference is one of trust. 
And one of trust means that you understand that God is in control, but you don't just simply shut down every emotion that goes through your mind, every childlike question that comes into your heart, simply because you want to make sure that you understand that God is in control. Rather, you allow the fact that God is in control to let even your chaotic emotions be something you express to God. Because he already knows them more than you know them. He knows you're thinking it, he knows you're feeling it, and hiding it does nothing. So express them. The problem, though, is like most believers, when you dwell long and hard on God's providence, the way that he is in control even of the challenges of this world, what can happen in our mind is something like what happens in John chapter 9. It doesn't jump off the page to us, but what's going on in John 9 is something very striking and very off-putting, you might say, to the Jews, the Pharisees in Jesus' day. In fact, for the sake of time, I didn't go on, but if you keep going beyond the verses we read in John 9, those in charge, the rabbis, actually begin to question and doubt and think that Jesus is some kind of blasphemer for the fact that he has healed this man. You see, because they know that there are some subtle codes, some clues that what Jesus has just done has just set them off. And they're very, very frustrated about this. So what's going on in this passage, and what can we learn from it? Well, we come across this scene of a man born blind. And his own disciples, thinking that they're wise and beyond their years, ask what is, you might say, a tongue twister or a riddle, theologically speaking. This is the question of how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. Are angels immaterial, therefore an infinite number of them can dance on a pin? Or is there some kind of material substance to an angel so only a finite number can dance on the pin? No one cares about that question. But people seem to have asked it at some point in the history of our life, history of the world. They ask this question, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? What's the tongue twister? How could an in utero baby sin? So much so that he is then transformed into something blind that comes out of the womb. But if it's the parent's sin, what does that mean about the baby's sin? That somehow generational sins can pass into the child, therefore all deformity, all problems of birth are somehow the problem of the parents having zigged instead of zagged and made God mad. You see, this question actually is a nonsensical question, but it makes kind of sense theologically. What's the problem here? Who's doing this? What, what, who did the thing that made this evil thing happen? You see, they have actually churned the question of suffering into a bit of a game. Rather than the very honest question of, why me, God? What's going on here? They are now making this a bit of a tongue twister. Who did this? Who sinned? Who's, whose fault was this ultimately? And if you're the rabbi, if you're the one you said you're going to be, you'll tell me. Jesus, very characteristically, doesn't play by the game. And he does something that germaphobes across the time and space of our history hate to see forever, which is he spit on the ground and he made some mud and he wiped the mud into the eyes of the blind man. Again, it might not jump off the page to you and me, but what is this a symbol of? Well, the very simple answer is, is what does God do when he creates Adam? He takes mud. He crafts it into a man, crafts it into a shape, and then breathes life into it, Genesis tells us. Here Jesus, by his own power, without asking God, you might say, without praying for some divine manifestation, by his own power, 
He spits into the mud. He then, spits in the dirt, I should say. He then makes the mud. He then applies it to the eyes and gives the man instruction to go and wash it. And he comes back healed. Jesus, in other words, is saying, I am the one who restores. I am the one who does the miracle. I am the one in charge. This, by the way, is why the Jews, the rabbis of Jesus' day, get so anxious and fearful and mad. They know exactly what Jesus has just done. He's had the audacity to claim the power of God without giving any credit verbally to God. You see, because in the Old Testament, prophets did all kinds of things that seemed very miraculous. But if you actually go and read all those stories, they're always very clear to say that they're not the ones doing it. They pray to God. They ask God for things. And the remarkable thing is that God answers the prophet and does what they ask. That's the strange thing. Here, as in other places in the Gospels, Jesus just simply does it. He calms the storm just by talking to it like a child. He spits into the dirt and makes mud and seems to recraft the eyes of a blind man who has never seen for for the entirety of his life. Jesus has the audacity to take our suffering and say, I am the one that verses like Psalm 10 point to. That at those times of suffering, in those times of challenge, in those times when things seem so broken, so empty, so problematic, when trucks drive across people who are just simply on vacation, and when bombs go off for no sake other than the anger of the person who who detonates them, where is God in all of this? Where is he? In the spring of this, sem- of this year, the spring semester, uh, we had a student who had enrolled for his second semester of courses. He was Brett. Brett was a lovably crazy man. Brett had spent about 20 years of his life homeless. He had been a salesman. He had some success in his life. He had done all kinds of things. He then got into alcohol and drugs took his life uh, away from the things that mattered and took him on to things that were uh, inconsequential, but yet they became addictions for him. He spent 20 years living out of a car, living wherever he could find what he needed. Over the course of time, though, he felt, of course, broken by this, lost his teeth, lost all kinds of things, felt very struck, felt, felt very struck by how he had ruined his own life. And then he came back, and he began to talk to people. In this case, he began to talk to people at the Salvation Army here locally. And they led him back to faith. They cleaned him up. They got him, they got him back on his feet. They got him off drugs and alcohol entirely. I met him several years on from that. Now one doing ministry, now one uh, of power and strength, uh, standing on his own two feet, who could speak to someone in a substance abuse problem in a case like that from a position of strength because he knew it. And he could share his life and he was helping people. And you would never have known it if you came across him what the challenges had been in his earlier part of his life. And so he came to seminary and he was going to be trained. He was in his second semester. I got a text from him suddenly that he was going to be gone, that his father was passing away that his father actually was um, uh, slowly passing away, but they thought it was going to be any day now. I did hear from Brett for several weeks, and then I got a call that Brett was in hospice, that he was set to die at any moment, that I probably didn't have time to even come and say goodbye to him, 
And then sure enough, within 48 hours, he was dead. You see, what had happened was, uh, we think, it's hard to say exactly, but the toxicity of his life for all those years under the, uh, being homeless with drugs and alcohol had, had essentially led to organ failure towards, the end of, towards this time of his life. And then as things began to shut down, kidneys and livers and things, he began to become delusional. Because the strangest part of the story was that his father actually showed up for the funeral, had never been in hospice, had never had any challenges whatsoever. This had all been part of his um, uh, imagination, you might say. And we thought back and we realized there was all kinds of things that were breaking down in his life, all kinds of strange episodes where it was clear something was falling apart internally. We just thought he was crazy. But he was lovably uh, kind of cuckoo. But it turns out he was dying. And the question that a lot of us asked around the seminary afterwards is why? Why this God? Thank you, you might say cynically, for saving him, but here is a man who just begins his ministry. Here is a man who just begins even as, he's in his third class, for crying out loud. He's only done one, two, three steps into his life of helping others. He's only done very, very little. And why? Why would you do this? Isn't it enough that he said, I'm sorry? Isn't it enough that he came back? Why would this happen? How could this happen? Why would you take Brett when he had so much to give? These verses answer that question. The answer is, it's not, was it his sin? Was it someone else's sin? Was there something singular that he did wrong? Did he not repent hard enough? Did you somehow not accept him fully? Was he not good enough for you? That's not the question. That's a tongue twister. That, that, that is a loaded question that leads you nowhere. Rather, Jesus gives us the answer here as well as Psalms. He says, whenever there's challenges, whenever you see that question, don't stop and ask whose fault was it? Because theologically, it's all of our faults. Sin is everywhere. It's in all of our hearts. None of us are immune from it. You don't have any better thans and worse thans in the sense of sin. Just because you might be going through a time of blessing and prosperity in your life, relationally or whatever it might be, just the fact you have a job and family and friends, that doesn't mean that you're somehow less sinful than the other people around you that are going through challenges. What Jesus says is don't ask that question. Don't ask the question, who caused this? Because the ultimate question is, what is God doing here in this? You start asking the question, who caused this? You start doing some biographical research into what was wrong with their life. And you can imagine with a story like Brett how we could create all kinds of reasons about, well, maybe he went back on drugs and alcohol and God took him. Someone actually said this one time. It was through a position of weakness, but they said, oh, maybe he relapsed and God had had enough. Said, we didn't have John chapter 9 in front of us. But God says, don't ask it that way. Don't dare try to guess what God is doing. Rather, See what God is doing and will do through every circumstance, through blessing or persecution, through good times or bad times. In this case, 
With a man born blind, God chose to restore. But I can't imagine reading the scriptures from cover to cover that Brett isn't perfectly happy with what God decided to do to take him at this point. See, the problem is, is that I and, and my fellow students and others around the campus wondered why we felt so hurt by it. I guarantee you Brett's perfectly happy with his decision. The fact of the matter is, is when it comes to suffering, when it comes to the blind sides of life, when it feels like you didn't necessarily do anything wrong, the instinct is to try to find out who actually did do something wrong and to start probing into that question. And that's what the Bible says don't do. Don't probe. Don't do that. Don't try to biopsy it and figure out where the problem was. And if you just fix that one thing, then all things will be fine going back to the way they should be. The fact of the matter is, is the proper answer, the proper posture of a Christian is to say, I know it's not any one thing. I know there's all kinds of reasons why he could have done this or allowed this before. I know there's all kinds of reasons why I don't want this. But the answer is to be a child. The answer is to be like my children when they're scared. They don't come to me and try to diagnose why I'm allowing things to happen in their life or why this is happening. They don't get existential man on me. Rather, they become child. They, they, remind, they are a child, as to say. They come to me and remind me what it's like to be a child because they just simply come and express the immediate emotions that they're going through. They say, I'm scared. I'm not happy. And it's always funny how no amount of logic gets them out of that question. You know what tends to get them out of that problem? Love. Hugs. Time together all the things that they find comforting. If you're a child, don't sit back and try to figure it out. You will never figure it out fully in this side of heaven. And if you are going through a circumstance right now that you are wondering, why God, why God? Or if you have gone through them, the answer isn't try to figure out, well, you know what? I didn't pray enough that week. I don't feel well. Or I, I did that one thing. Or I, I did that series of things that are very problematic. Therefore... This is a result that I'm not doing enough. You know what that leads to? A complete works righteousness. As if the way you're going to interact with God is by doing more good things than, negative, than, than bad things, and that therefore you have more deposits in your spiritual bank account than, than debits. Therefore you're in the black with God, therefore you get the good things with God. No relationship with children works that way. Rather, what works is relationships. Communication. So you go back to Psalm 10 now. Okay, John 9 has corrected us. Don't ask that question. Go back to Psalm 10. What's Psalm 10 saying? Why, God? What's going on? This is scary. There are bad guys in this world, and I don't like that. There are circumstances that make me fearful. There are people who de even deny that you exist that seem to be getting on better than me. Why? What's going on? Help. It stops short of trying to figure it all out and try to micromanage God, but rather it does say, as a child, why? Where are you? And because of that, by the end, it has the answer of a child. You're on the throne. You're the big dad. I'm not in charge. You are. When I feel, when I feel, feel fear, when I feel frustration, when I feel uh, the pain of this life, I don't sit back and try to figure out the pain. I try to figure out God. 
And that that somehow gives me comfort. I had a pastor who used to tell this wonderful story uh, when I was growing up uh, about he lived, he grew up in a rough neighborhood and um, he himself was kind of halfway between rough and tumble kid and the good kid who stayed away from all that. And he says there was this band of like nine-year-old thugs, as, as thuggish as you could be at nine, I guess, um, in, in his neighborhood who would you know ride around on bikes and just do all kinds of nasty things to people. And he said he'd had enough of them one day and he drove by and he said something really rude to them. And like out of a scene from a 1980s movie, the kids get on the bikes and they're pedaling behind him. And this one solo figure, like Indiana Jones running away from the boulder, is trying to get away from these kids before they pummel him. He's done something the wrong way. He feels fear, let's just say it that way. They're chasing him. And he's within two blocks of his house. And as he's driving up, he realized that his father, strangely, was out in the front yard doing something. His father was more uh, of an inside guy, he always said. And his father apparently was oafish, this, this kind of six foot five, like you look up to him at all times kind of a thing. And he just remembers dr- riding his bike, pedaling as fast as his little legs will go, just yelling, Daddy! And his dad, sort of kneeling down at something, just sort of stood up and looked. And he said he didn't see it, but he heard the, squ- the squelching of seven bicycle brakes all at once. And he turned back, and they were going the other way suddenly, immediately. That is Psalm 10. For most of it, it is the screaming, Dad, where are you? Father, where are you? What is going on? I have no idea. These guys are chasing me. Maybe, yeah, maybe I did something, but they're chasing me. And at the end, God stands up. And you hear the squeal of brakes. All those challenges, all those evils of this world suddenly pale in comparison when Daddy stands up. The king is on his throne. The king is not intimidated whatsoever by the terror of nine-year-old boys on bikes. They, uh, they have no way to stop him. They cannot stand up to him. And all he has to do is simply display who he is without even doing anything. And the child feels comfort. The child immediately knows that God's in control. So what do you take away from this? One, don't try to guess for God. Don't try to guess what's going on, the how, the why, the what, who did this, who did that to cause sin and suffering in this world, particularly in the case of something that is blindsiding to somebody. Hit the mute button whenever something bad happens to somebody that seems to ha- you know, have no, re- no cause for this. Don't dare, like John 9, sit there and say, well, I wonder what she did to cause that. Don't do that. That's not your job. God doesn't give you that information. The only thing you'll be doing is guessing, and when you guess, you get it wrong. Secondly, like the child running away from the bullies, realize that your job is to call out to God like a child. Your job is to call out and say, help, I don't know, I'm scared, I don't know what's going on. But unlike some in this very Freudian world, don't just simply stick there in the the raw emotion of it. The raw emotion is fine, but you can't live there forever. What you have to realize, like the end of Psalm 10, is that when you get to the end, God stands up. And he says, it's all right. Nothing is going to come against me. Nothing can stand up to me. And as a child, put yourself into that comfort. It won't answer every question. You're not given every answer on this side of heaven. 
but it does mean that you trust. And when you trust, you're in a much better position than when you doubt and when you try to figure it all out. Let's pray. Father, these are not easy things to do, though they can be easy things to say. Forget the specifics, Lord, just help us to be children. Forget all the rules that we try to put on ourselves, the way we try to figure it out and the way we try to fix it ourselves, the way we try to answer for you rather than let you be God. Lord, above all, let us be children. Remind us that you are the king. And then all we need to do is get home, rest in your arms, because nothing will harm us there. Lord, for the injustices in this world, we do pray, though, that you would cast them down, that you would put an end to that. Come quickly, Lord. We look forward to the day when every tear is wiped away. But until then, Lord, give us the, child, the childlike posture to trust you in all circumstances. And we ask for this in the name of Christ. Amen.